You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Here we are. Another week. Another, another week, week, another show. Yep. Back here on the proper. That's right. Here we are on the proper. You know what? We got some actually uh, kind of big news, cool stuff going on over at the Patreon this week, Ben. As we sit here on Monday recording the proper, kicking this off, this week right now is CME Patreon free preview week. So all of the content over at the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon, both that we're going to put up this week and the stuff we did last week, anybody could access that. Anybody in the whole world this week can go look at the Patreon page, see all the cool stuff that's going on there. And hell, man, if you like it, you can sign up to become a patron starting in May. That's right. Because maybe there's some people swing by the Patreon every once in a while and they're like, I don't know. I want. I feel like these guys probably have some pretty good Patreon content that as a fan of both the CME and MMA, I might be into. But I, I need a taste. I need a little bit of a tester. I need them to, to toss me out a little bit of something so I can find out if I like it or not. This is the week that we're going to make that possible for you, including the live chats. You can get down on the live chat. Always a good time. The, the movie club, we just did Foxcatcher. We're going to make, make that available. Even last week's Power Hour, where we power ranked our way through the essential fights of one David Lee Tank Abbott. Still relevant this week, or at least as well as it was last week. I'm still winded from it. Yeah, no, it wasn't easy. I mean, you're going to be changed at the end of that emotional journey. But all that stuff going to be free on the Patreon this week. And Chad, as we sit here recording this right now, this is CME episode 399. It's a big one. We're on deck for 400. 400. You know the CME going to roll out some special stuff for 400. Yeah, so we're gonna, we'll are gonna be doing 400 next week. Maybe some stuff going on over at the Patreon page next week, too. You never know. You never know, indeed, especially when it's 400 week, as I'm calling right. it. You know what this reminds me of with the free preview week, Ben? It's like, remember when you were a kid when you used to get that HBO free preview for a oh, weekend? Yeah. yeah. And then you'd have, to, you'd have to try to watch like a whole season of Oz. In, in 48 hours before the preview expired? Yeah, or I remember more vividly being a kid and they would hit you with the free preview weekend of the Disney Channel and then my sister would just monopolize the TV throughout the entire weekend. And it was like, okay, on one hand, getting a little annoyed here. There's only so much Mickey Mouse Club bullshit I can stand. On the other hand, it's only one weekend and this is very important to her. I mean, I know what you were doing. You were staying up late trying to catch that HBO late night. Trying to see if I can see me a scrambled titty, you know? Yeah, a little, little bit of skin max over there. Whatever you can get. Probably set the uh, the VHS VCR to record Lord of the G-Strings. <laughs> well, Lord of the G-Strings. Is that just off the top of your head right now? That's. Just... I mean, I, you, know, you never know. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's a real movie called that. How would I ever know? Maybe you're pulling from a deep well of childhood memories possible it's possible anyway it's free preview week over at the co-main event podcast patreon go over and check all the cool stuff that is going on over there if you like it you can sign up for more uh have you guys got your copy of the blaze yet 
If not, you better get on it. And that's my new novel. As everybody knows, it's a mystery and thriller. Uh, you know, I've been hearing a lot from all the little co-maniacs out there that they think it's pretty good. If you haven't got it, run out and grab The Blaze today on whatever format you like to do your reading. And remember, if you have read it, do me a solid, man. Go over there. If you enjoyed it and give me a five-star review over on Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like to do your reviewing, those reviews help the book, as you guys know. So do me a favor, buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. You can also go out and- Can I get it on a nook? Absolutely get it on your nook, man. The nook didn't really take off, you know? Does the nook still exist? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, me either. In any case, don't forget you can also go get your CME logo t-shirts right now over at cottonbureau.com. We got those for sale. We got cowboy astronaut cigarettes t-shirts for sale. And we got Dundasso t-shirts for sale. Those are always available on demand all the time whenever you want them. Go over to cottonbureau.com and drape those old bones in some CME merchandise today. We got music again this week from our guy, Dion Rodriguez, a producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z, beat, z. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, UFC 249 is definitely headed for Jacksonville, Florida. Maybe. Pretty sure. I mean, assuming it happens at all, that's probably where it's going to be. So we'll see. And in round number two, PFL. What's up with you, man? And in round number three, hey, we got some ideas how to fix MMA. Buckle up, you bunch of goofs. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Rich Goins. So old school UFC PA announcer, the G-Man, Rich Gogo Goins. Yeah, good to hear from him. Yeah. I know you're you're, – maybe he heard that you are a longtime Rich Goins uh, homer. You're you're a real fan of Rich Goins. I don't know if you're just flexing your old school cred there, but everybody else is out here like, oh, Bruce Buffer and his fancy tuxes. You're like, man, I miss the days of Rich Goins. I've always been a Rich Goins guy. You know what I like about uh, the G-Man is how he would say everybody's name twice. Yeah, that's some old school announcer shit. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Anyway, the G-Man writes in, why do most media defend the Dominic Cruz-Henry Cejudo fight while they went crazy that Jose Aldo and McGregor were mentioned as contenders earlier this year? Dominic comes off a 2016 loss to Cody Garbrandt. Uh, I feel that media just favor Cruz as a person. Yeah, he probably is a nice guy because Peter Yan, who was booked uh, to fight against Marace was available and so much more worthy of a title shot. We all know Cejudo tries to get as much easy wins over aged uh, fighters who had their prime years ago. Why doesn't the UFC step in and why not try to make a new superstar star out of uh, Jan uh, Sterling or another talent? So yeah, I, this is all good stuff. These are all good points, right? Yeah, that's, it is a fair point to be like, okay, we were all going to complain about Jose Aldo going down to bantamweight losing one fight and then getting a title shot anyway. And then lo and behold, here comes Dominic Cruz on a four-year layoff when his last fight was a loss and a more decisive loss than Jose Aldo's. You could also make that point if you wanted to. And yet when he gets shuffled in there, people are going, you know what? Actually, not bad. We're kind of into this. And I, I mean, I don't know if it's just that media just like Cruz better as a person. I think a lot of it is that the, for one thing, he's been gone so long that it feels kind of like we're opening up the vault and Dominic Cruz is coming out. And 
we didn't even consider that an option when we were looking at who Henry Cejudo might fight as a, like we, I mean, he called out, you know, Cruz at various points when he's looking for fights, but it just seemed like, man, is Dominic Cruz ever even going to fight again? We don't know. And so then when he jumps in there and we're all thinking, all right, stylistically, it seems like a fun matchup. Plus he, if you're making a list has to be on there as one of the greatest MMA bantamweights of all time at this point. So he lost that one fight, but maybe it does him, some good that that fight was so long ago. We haven't seen him in so long. We've had a chance to kind of forget about that and to miss him a little bit. And so when he pops back in this one, maybe I think a lot of it is just people were not that excited about the Jose Aldo matchup. And so you give us this one and we go, all right, this feels like an improvement on that. Even if we, as Rich Goins points out, have to, if we list the reasons why we think it's great, we would also have to make some of those same comments about Jose Aldo. Yeah, I think that everything you said is is valid and true. And on top of it, I would also suggest a little bit that well maybe I'll just ask the question. Isn't Henry Cejudo against Dominic Cruz also a slightly more intriguing physical matchup just because, you know, we kind of know what Jose Aldo is going to do. Uh we kind of know what Henry Cejudo will do. We're familiar with Dominic Cruz and his style, but number 1, he's been gone so long that we don't know exactly how he will approach a fight with Henry Cejudo. Number 2, like Cruz has that very distinctive and difficult to prepare for style. So like to have him come in on somewhat short notice to fight Henry Cejudo here at the revamped UFC 249 is is kind of an interesting physical task to me for Henry Cejudo to take on because he's going to have to, you know, solve the riddle of Dominic Cruz, who can be a very elusive, very tricky, difficult uh, to figure out fighter. Yeah. And I also think you at least have the narrative here where Henry Cejudo is cementing his role as the bantamweight champ by taking on one of the greatest bantamweights ever. Whereas with Jose Aldo, it was like, okay, we, he's one of the greatest featherweights ever, but he had yet, he was 0-1 in his new life as a bantamweight. And so when you have those other guys available, it just seemed like, okay, why are we looking for that fight instead? But I guess you also benefit from lowered expectations in the sense that we all realize this is during a pandemic. Aljamain Sterling has basically said, I can't take any fights right now. I can't even get into a gym. He lives in New York. It's it, He can't get in anywhere to really train to get into fight shape, so it wouldn't make sense for him to get his title shot now. Peter Yan, I don't know if you can even get him into the country right now. I don't know where he is, but I, I mean, I would think that that would be a major concern if you were thinking about him. And so under those circumstances, Dominic Cruz feels like a pretty good option. Yeah, and, and like I will reiterate again, being a nice person does matter. Like we would like to say that it doesn't. And we are, we are, you know, engaged in a strict meritocracy here where you, where you get what you earn and everything is, is, uh, is based around how good you are as, as a fighter in the MMA world. But also like some of people's reaction to news just flat is going to be based on whether or not they like you, you know, like, uh, I remember back in the TRT era, like we all kind of lined up to give Dan Henderson a little bit of a benefit of the doubt that maybe we weren't given other people during that same time. And obviously Dan Henderson never uh, tested positive for elevated levels of testosterone, never really like uh, appeared to, to travel outside the bounds of what the TRT rules were at the time that he was using. But at the same time, like we heaped a whole lot of shit at the feet of a whole lot of other people that we did not heap at the feet of Dan Henderson. 
True. And I think that at least some of that had to do with the fact that everybody liked Dan Henderson and that he was a fun fighter to watch. He'd always had a, like an attitude that was easy, easy to get behind. Uh, and it just seemed like when he told us he was using stuff uh, the right way and he was following all the rules, it was easy to believe him. And part of it was because we liked that guy. So if you want to know in some cases why people would look more favorably on Dominic Cruz getting a title shot against Henry Cejudo than Jose Aldo. Like probably some of it has to do with the fact that people like the guy. And on top of all that, he's had such a difficult road, especially recently in his MMA career that like who could blame anybody for standing back and being and feeling, you know, like, Hey, that's great for Dominic Cruz. Give him, give him the opportunity to go out there and win the 135 pound title one more time. Why not? Yeah. You know, and somebody mentioned in my uh, mailbag for the athletic this week, and I think they have a good point. If Dominic Cruz comes out here after four years away, jumps right back into a title shot against two division champion and former Olympic gold medalist Henry Zahudo and beats him to reclaim the UFC bantamweight title yet again, I think he etches his name into a lot of people's pound for pound grace list right there. It would be an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, it really would. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Travis Steele, who writes, Octagon on the beach? Are you fucking kidding me? We going back to some Bodog shit? <laughs> I'm glad there's still some people around in the MMA space who remember the Bodog era. Yeah. Right I mean, palm trees is, waving in the background. It is. It is. It does have the – we don't know what Fight Island will be like, but it does have the potential to be like that, right? Like when, when Bodog had the ring out there on the beach and Eddie Alvarez was out there whipping up on on nobodies. Yeah, I okay. So this is apparently the real plan, though, right? Like that the octagon is going to be on the beach. That's what they've said. That feels to me like I guess I kind of like it. If you're going to do Fight Island at all, anyway, if that's going to be your thing, as uh, as Cy Tolliver would say, lean into the strangeness, boys. You know, if you're going to do Fight Island, it's already kind of a weird thing. You might as well have the entire viewing experience remind you that we're out here on a beach at a private island in order basically to escape uh, rules and regulations that would prevent these fighters from getting here otherwise. Might as well. Yeah, I mean, we we can all stand around and and try to meet out whether or not what the UFC is doing adheres to our own moral structures and our own uh, like social mores. But like one of the things that I think we can count on is that the UFC is going to make it look cool, right? Like they, they have a long history of doing pretty good stuff production value wise. And despite the fact that the UFC product itself has kind of become uh, like a self-fulfilling assembly line, basically that turns out shows that are more or less indistinguishable from the rest uh, on a, on a regular basis. Like I do think that they will capitalize on this as an opportunity. The fact that they get to go allegedly to this Island and, and do fights there. I think that they will go out of their way to kind of like, uh, take advantage of the of what they have there, like you know, if that and make it feel a little bit distinctive, make it feel a little bit cool. And I think having the octagon outside on the beach is is part of that. Obviously, that could backfire in numerous ways as well, and the weather being the most obvious one to pick out. But uh, you know, I think if Fight Island becomes a reality, and Dana White is out there wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a lay. And we're we're all drinking fresh uh, mixed drinks out of a cut in half coconut. Uh, I think that you can you can count on the UFC to to play it up a little bit to like make it feel distinctive and special. Do you think you mentioned the Hawaiian shirt in the lay? Do you think that Hawaiian MMA fans right now are hearing the talk about Fight Island and going, "What the fuck, man? <laughs> We've been trying to get you to come here forever. You won't do it because the Hawaii Tourism Board won't pay you just because." 
they kind of have a crazy idea over there in Hawaii that they're doing pretty well with tourism as it is generally, and they don't need to pay the UFC a bunch of money to bring an event there. And yet they've been, it's been a discussion point for years about the UFC going to Hawaii and doing an, uh, an event. And who would have thought you'd get UFC with no fans on a private island with an octagon on the goddamn beach before you'd see them go to Hawaii? Yeah, you think the uh, like who was it? T.J. Thompson and uh, Rumble on the Rock are probably looking around, being like, "Hey, man, like we were Fight Island before this shit was cool. Like we already were Fight Island. What are you? Uh, what's this about? Also, do you need to buy a cage because we got one? Literal fights on a literal island. That's what we were already doing. That hence uh, Tank Abbott versus Cabbage Carrera two from last week's Power Hour. Like I would ever forget that one. Come on. It's impossible to forget. Next question this week comes to us uh, from Julian Symbolista Clap, who writes, while watching highlight videos on the UFC YouTube channel focused on specific types of finishes, spinning, flying, darts, chokes, etc., it occurred to me that there are certain submission finishes I hardly ever see anymore, especially not on main card fights. Triangle chokes, arm bars, kimuras, knee bars, Ben, and someone with a BJJ background, and Chadster, that's me, any ideas as to why these submissions have mostly fallen off the UFC map? I could swear I saw more, more saw them more often in the previous era. Now, Ben, I would just hazard a guess that that uh, your your triangle chokes, your straight arm bars, your kimuras, your knee bars are uh, submissions that are easy to counter if you know how to get out of them. Well, yeah, I think one of the explanations is that everybody's better at jujitsu now, especially just like defensive jujitsu. And I think that you, when you hear from a lot of MMA coaches, I've been surprised by this in the past, but it makes a lot of sense where I heard MMA coaches say to me, you know what? I don't want a guy who has this wealth of different submissions that he's pulling from at any point. Like, I want a guy who does a few simple things but does them well. Like I want him to have a few good striking techniques that he knows that you know th- those are that's my bread and butter, and I want him to have one or two submissions. That's his thing th- th- from a couple different positions, and that's it. Like I don't want him to be trying a whole bunch of other stuff and giving away good opportunities to either control the fight on the ground or score with punches and things like that. I think like some of them. I think you do see some triangles, but you see more, I think, now triangle armbar combinations because if you're just trying to get somebody in a triangle and you haven't hurt them with punches or something to open up the opportunity in the first place, when you got guys out there who are both sweaty and hard to hold on to and you got somebody who has their wits still about them and knows how to counter a triangle, then it's going to be hard to finish that person from most triangle positions. If you throw on that armbar triangle combination, now they have – less with which to defend themselves and they have a much shorter little stopwatch in their head telling them how much time they got to get out of this. So like I think that's one of the reasons you see some of those tra- changes. There arm bars I think too. I mean you still see some people you see it more from like specialists. People were like you know leg locks are my thing or arm bars are my thing. I think people especially with when it comes to kimuras uh Either they're doing it from the top position as a way to make you think about something else or they're doing it from the bottom as like a Kimura trap series uh, in like sweeps or, or something where they're looking – they're not looking to finish the submission so much as they're looking to use it to gain a better position. And you, you just – it's hard to finish people with those, especially if it's not your absolute thing that you excel at and you're nailing this all the time and you're going right to it. Like a – Especially if you don't have a really good dominant position on somebody when you're trying to go for something like a Kimura. A lot of people in a fight for some money are going to let you do some fucked up shit to their shoulder 
as long as it's not completely snapping your arm, they're they're not going to tap to stuff like that so easily. And so uh, I think that's it's a combination of all those factors that you just don't see people even going for it as often anymore because they know that because it's like all right, it's like if you want if you were trying to make a fighter and craft what you want to put into his game and you know you only have so much room in there like you want a guy who goes for chokes like more than you want a guy who goes for like stuff where we're relying on the other dude to realize he is about to be injured and tap out like like my man helio gracie said chad for the choke there are no tough guys that's true that's true uh do you think that any part of it also is the idea that MMA in some ways has evolved to be a game of positional superiority. Like people uh, know which positions they want to be in. They want to stay there and they either want to maintain that position or they want to like do the most damage that they can from that position. And so like you don't necessarily, if you're, if you're on top, you don't necessarily want to like pivot to the arm bar in a way that, you know, uh, Matt Hughes might do way back in the day. Like you, you want to keep that position because if you try to go for an arm bar, if you, or especially if you try to go for a knee bar, some of these submission attempts require you to give up an advantageous position. And if you don't get it, then you are sort of like more in harm's way, or you've lost the positional superiority that you originally had. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of aspects of MMA jujitsu that is different from typical competition just pure grappling jujitsu in that way because i remember asking a mma coach once like how do you you know what are your favorite ways for passing the guard or stuff like that and he was like i don't really advise passing the guard for most of my guys like in an mma fight to me i want to get to half guard if i can get half guard on top that's a better spot for me than side control on top because uh, i want to be able to hold the guy down make it clear to the judges that I'm winning and punch the guy in the face and not let him go anywhere and not give him an opportunity to try something just to create space or to create an opportunity to get up or anything. And he would just say like, I was, if, if you'll see people in half guard, give somebody an opportunity to move around to side control, side control. Cause they feel like I have a better chance of escaping from side control or at least in the transition or something. And People will not take it. They will they will stay there in half guard, which for normal jujitsu purposes, you'd be like, well, that's crazy. You want to keep adv- advancing the position to be a, in a more dominant uh, position. But then for MMA, you just have different goals. And I, I think that a lot of people have not only learned that, but then everybody kind of teaches each other how this game works. And they see other people doing that. And then your entire game becomes built around, well, here's what people do. And so like I need to be I need to tailor my game around what my opponents are likely to do, not just the full spectrum of what is possible. Next question this week comes to us from David Lotteray, who writes, was Junior Dos Santos's first round knockout of Kane Velasquez during the one fight UFC on Fox One card. The worst thing that could ever happen uh, for those dreaming of a day when advertisers foot the bill and fans are able to watch all UFC cards live and free on various networks, a la most other pro sports. I mean, if you're an advertiser with five rounds worth of commercials lined up, only to see all of them become virtually worthless with one overhand right, it might have made you pause on the idea of putting a bunch of advertising money on the line for a sport that might only last 30 seconds. Was that idea a beta test for advertising that failed miserably, or was that not what's really going on? Well, I would argue with that one. Nobody said that you only had to do one fight on 
like to fill an hour of programming time with just one fight. That was kind of a weird choice to begin with, right? Like, especially heavyweights, knowing everything we know about heavyweights, you had to know that this was a very real possibility that you're going to get like a 61 second fight or whatever it was. It's just, uh, that is often the case. And they had a full fight card for that one. And I was at, you were, you were, you and I were both at that one. And yeah, had that good, isn't that the one where they had that good Benson Henderson, Clay Guida fight? Yeah, it was the co-main, and I remember as it was happening, Benson Henderson ended up beating Clay Guida by uh, unanimous decision. But like as it was happening, it was this crazy three-round scramble fest. And I remember yeah. sitting there watching it cage side being like, oh, shit, they should have put this one on TV. Like they should have gone with a two-fight lineup, and they should have put this one, and then they should have put the the heavyweight title fight uh as the main event. You know what else was on there that I'm just I'm just looking at now? Like the two fights previous to that, uh, Dustin Poirier against Pablo Garza. He beat him by Darce Choke in the second round. And Ricardo Lamas against Cub Swanson. He beat him by Arm Triangle in the second round. Like any of those three fights would have been amazing to put on television. Yeah, and it's not like this thing did poor ratings even with the 61-second main event. I mean, you still got almost 10 million people to watch the thing. And... Then as soon as the deal, the Fox deal started in earnest, it didn't take very long until we saw the quality of the cards that the UFC was putting on the big Fox network really change. And it was clear that the UFC was going to give you this one, like a heavyweight title fight on network TV, just as a one-time special thing. In the future, it wasn't going to put anything on there that it thought people would pay for on pay-per-view. And I mean, I do wonder a lot now, I mean, I guess we see pretty clearly what the model looks like now and with the UFC getting these guarantees for every pay-per-view and ESPN wanting to drive subscribers to ESPN plus. So everybody kind of has their own motives there, but it does seem like you could take a really good fight card and like a title fight, put it on regular ESPN and maybe have a chance to draw some new viewers in and pull some new people into the sport. But it just seems in all respects that that's not where anybody's focus is at right now everybody's trying like let's increase subscribers let's increase buys let's just like get straight to the part where we put more cold hard cash into our pockets rather than taking a sl- like a slow build approach to adding more fans and increasing overall awareness of the sport right like and i definitely see where david lottery is coming from here uh i just don't think at the time internally that the junior dos santos kane velasquez fight was was viewed as a disappointment or a you know, a failure. Like it did really good ratings, as you said. And I think that if it had been the priority of Fox and the UFC to put free fight cards on network television, that would that would be kind of like a big deal, like a heavyweight title showcase, like they tried to do with this one, like they would have figured out a way to do it. If we learned anything from uh, the uh, Fox Sports One days, it was that they were going to figure out a way to get the advertisements in, right? Like they, no matter what happened, they were going to show you those ads, man. And uh, I think that they could have done the same thing for like a shorter, more focused network television broadcast, which, hey, man, as we sit here today, I still think is a good idea. Like, I still think that if you wanted to do that with ESPN or ABC or whatever, uh, you could still make it work. And it would be a great way to to try to expose the sport to to new fans and try to grow the sport. But like you said, right now we are in a cash first mentality as you can plainly see clearly with what's going on with the UFC now, like they need to make their money and they need to like increase profits as much as they can. And so that's the thing that they are focused on now, not anything else. Yeah. 
In any case, that is going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us while you're there. Go ahead and uh, sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Is there, it appears that there is not a, uh, an updated Wikipedia page for the new UFC 249. Uh, I just looked it up today on, uh, the UFC website. Okay. Okay, here we go. Well, Ben, we are as close as we have been in a long time to having UFC 249 signed, sealed, and delivered. At this point, we're thinking Vi Star Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, Florida, going down a couple of Saturdays from now on May 9th. We're going to hold true with our Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje main event for an interim lightweight title. As we talked about at the top of the show, Henry Cejudo versus Dominic Cruz is the co-main. And you got a uh, a complete main card filled out with Francis Ngannou versus the Biggie Boy, uh, Jeremy Stevens versus, versus Calvin Cater. And of course, if you're doing something special, you got to have Greg Hardy. Greg Hardy versus Jorgen DeCastro, my man. Plus, you know, I will say, if we were just talking about quality of card, your ESPN prelims here with Donald Cerrone versus a- Anthony Pettis as your uh, your quote-unquote featured prelim, not too shabby. All the way around a decent fight card, though, considering the state of the world and everything that is going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm not sure you can look at this event and only talk about it in terms of quality of fights. Yeah, that's true. But I do think I have seen a whole lot of stuff around like the headlines being like mostly from Dana White saying it, the most stacked card in UFC history is greatest card I've ever put on. Somebody asked me a question in the mailbag today. Is this the most stacked card? I think if you compare it to stuff like UFC 100 and even UFC 200, you have to conclude that no, there have been much more stacked, especially just main card lineups. Because what you have here essentially is you have a made up title fight, which is a really interesting matchup. It's going to be probably a very, very fun fight between Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje. But calling it a title fight, is that's just fictional. That's just you pulling a belt out of the old supply closet, maybe the same one you took from Tony Ferguson earlier, and then putting it back up for grabs so you can say that you have a title fight on the card. But then you have a legit title fight between Henry Zahudo and Dominic Cruz at bantamweight. And then you got you know what's likely to be assuming we ever get the heavyweight title picture sorted out, a number one contender fight between Francis Ngannou and, and the Biggie boy. And then after that, just some stuff. Like you have some some fun matchups, some uh, fights that should end up being really fun uh, and exciting to watch. But if you compare it to stuff like UFC 200, like the main card of UFC 200, even after John Jones uh, was pulled at the last minute for the drug test failure and we had to scramble to get Daniel Cormier versus Anderson Silva, even after that, you still had 
eight of the 10 fighters on the main card either had been UFC champions or were just about to be UFC champions. And then, and even like the prelims for those cards, I mean, UFC 100, John Jones and Mark Coleman were both on the prelims of UFC 100. Uh, So you have to just be honest with yourself and admit that it is not the most stacked card in UFC history, but still, especially for the current era, a very, very good fight card. And yet you're right. That is not at all the only discussion topic leading into an event like this. As we sit here today, we are roughly 12 days away from the scheduled date of this thing. Clearly, we landed in Florida uh, after a couple of other failed attempts to do the event elsewhere. Florida has recently declared professional sports a quote-unquote essential business. The Florida Athletic Commission has long been uh, somewhat malleable, I guess, to the desires of big budget promoters. And so we see a place where we can probably do UFC 249. Like as we sit here, like I said, a little bit less than two weeks out, I feel more, I don't know if confident is the right word, but I feel more confident that this thing will actually happen than I have at any time when we've been discussing any of this chaos around UFC 249 in the past. Uh, and, And I will tell you that conference does not necessarily make me feel a whole lot better. Uh, we we think we're going to get this fight card to come off. The UFC is saying that it will do it with a very expensive safety budget. But above and beyond that, the fight company is not necessarily releasing a lot of on-the-record information about what those safety measure, measures will be, will be. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, guys like Lyman Good and Alexander Hernandez come out and say that they have, they have been affected by COVID-19. Like Lyman Good had the disease. Alexander Hernandez thinks he might have had it. And those were both fighters that once upon a time were scheduled to fight at UFC 249. So it's not like we can even say that this event is immune or, or hasn't been touched by the disease because we do know that there are fighters that, that were supposed to fight on this thing that ended up having COVID-19. So uh, as we sit here, I, I feel like I, this is probably going to happen, and that doesn't necessarily fill me w- with a lot of hope or confidence as to what the fallout is going to be here. Yeah, the thing that seems still surprising to me is that the UFC's approach seems to be that we're, we're going to go ahead with this thing and we're going to tell you as little as possible about what safety measures we're taking except to just assure you over and over again that it's going to be fine. And if you are taking really good safety measures, like Dana White saying it's expensive, we're going to spend a lot of money to do this, and we have a great safety record and all this stuff, if, if that's all true, if, you're, if you are taking really good safety measures, then why wouldn't you want us to know about it? I, I, I guess I understand a little bit if their argument is, hey, if we tell you that we are testing for coronavirus, then you're going to be like, hey, why did the UFC get these tests when these tests nationally are in really short supply and it's an ongoing issue that's in the news every single day that we just don't have enough tests and testing isn't where it needs to be. And okay, fair. But if you're also telling us like that you're not going to do the testing, if that's actually what turns out to be the case, because if you do the testing, we're going to hear about it, right? Like the, the fighters are going to talk about it. Have they underwent some kind of testing? Like they're going to notice if you stick a Q-tip all the way in the back of their throat or whatever you have to do to get the test, like that's going to come out. And if you don't do that, that's also going to come out. And so if you are telling us, hey, don't worry, it's going to be fine. We're not, we're going to take all the precautions necessary during a pandemic to do this event safely. But then none of the precautions include testing to see if anybody that is coming into your event maybe already has the virus and can spread it to other people. 
then you can also tell us that you're taking all the safety measures you have to take. Like that is the most baseline one is are you testing for the disease that is at the subject or at, at the heart of all of this conversation? If you're not doing that, then how can you say that the safety measures you're taking are anywhere near adequate? Yeah. I mean, you're right. We are going to find out one way or another what these safety precautions were slash are. And we're going to find out, I think, in the weeks in the wake of this thing, like who, if anybody associated with any of these events, which is another thing that we haven't even touched on yet, the UFC, not just doing UFC 249 here at the Star Veterans Memorial Arena. We're going to go ahead and do three events in the course of a week, basically. We're going to do a, a Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday lineup of the next three UFC events. And I think that the company will be very lucky, frankly, if we come out of this thing with three events with a, a host of fighters coming and going uh, I think we'll be very lucky if we get out of this thing without any coronavirus exposure or with zero stories about such and such people who were involved with the event who later came up with the disease. Yeah, and see, that's the other thing is trying to squeeze three of them in in a week when no one knows for sure exactly how well you can pull off one right now, like how safely it's possible to even do one right now. Because but if you do find out like, hey, our measures weren't good enough or like it was just riskier than we thought and people ended up getting sick and, and spreading the disease around to each other while they were all there for fight week, it seems like you might not find out that your measures weren't good enough until you have infected a whole bunch of people that way. Because it's like it, – it'd be one that if you were doing one and then you were going to wait a few weeks and see like, okay, is everybody all right? Did we Did we really pull it off? And if it turns out that, hey, thumbs up nobody's sick, everybody's fine, then you could be like, all right, now we can start scheduling these events pretty regularly. But if you squeeze three into one week, it, that seems like the perfect recipe to only find out too late that you you didn't know some of the things you needed to know about how to do this. Like That's, that's is it, the part I really wonder about. Is it cynical to suggest that maybe that's by design? That, like, that they want to go ahead it? and make the money while they can before they get shut well, down again? Yeah, not necessarily. Well, not necessarily that they want to like do it all before anyone can figure out if it's safe or not. But it, it definitely has the vibe of like, all right, we've got this arena, we've got this window, we're going to get in and get our three te- our, our three shows done, and then we're going to get out of dodge. Like cramming three events into this week, which I'm sure is just all uh, organized around the UFC eventually making its its quota of live events for ESPN this year. But like going into a situation where you don't really know if it's going to be safe, rattling off three quick events almost at unprecedented speed and then getting out of town to me also – uh, has a vibe to it of like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna rob this bank and run out of here with these bundles of cash before the cops show up, kind of. Well, the other thing that you have to consider is how this plays in the timing, just generally about what what's going on in the country with all the coronavirus stuff, because especially like in that area, because you have Georgia saying, okay, we're gonna ease our restrictions, even though. The president himself says that he doesn't. He thinks it's too soon for Georgia to be doing that. And you're in North Florida, not far from the the state border with Georgia. Florida has already been pretty relaxed about the measures it's been taking and taking some criticism for it and letting people you know, come back, do normal stuff sooner than other states are. You have just kind of generally a lot of states like you know we live in Montana. Montana has said like okay, we're going to begin a phased reopening, uh, and it's still not entirely clear how that's going to work. Like, I mean, 
we, we have like a plan in Montana where they say, okay, here are the businesses that can open first. Here are the businesses that could open second. But you don't know yet like if people are going to go to those businesses. Like There's also the element of just because people can do it doesn't mean that they will in this situation. But you also – you don't know if people are going to be like, okay, hey, I live in Georgia, Florida. Beaches are open up. Let's go to Florida. Let's like break up a little bit of the monotony of everybody being locked down. Like you, you don't know yet how this is going to play out. And to be trying to do an event in that exact zone this early on into the thing means it's there's a lot of variables you don't know yet. And if you listen to a lot of what the experts uh, predict about exactly how this is all going to go and, and what we should expect – uh, you know, the I talked before about how the Daily had a good podcast about it. Uh, the The Atlantic had a piece about our pandemic summer. That basically, what a lot of the experts expect is that we're going to find out the areas where we're easing restrictions too soon because we're going to see spikes in cases, and it's going to be a lot of this back and forth where we're saying like, okay, we think we're good here, we can relax restrictions. Then we see a spike in cases uh, uh, surrounding one thing. We say, okay, we were wrong about that, or it was too soon about that. Let's go back under some form of lockdown and that we'll probably be going back and forth like this you know, for like a year, a year or more until we have a vaccine basically. We will probably be in that back and forth dance. And so if you're trying to like squeeze in these events during it, I, I just – I guess I wonder what the UFC is telling itself is going to be the fallout if fighters or personnel or somebody does get sick. Are they thinking, all right, you know, hey, maybe – you turn up later and you hear like Francis Ngannou uh, has a mild case of coronavirus, but he's fine. He didn't have to be hospitalized. And hey, maybe he he caught it at the grocery store or maybe he caught it uh, at the airport or something. Like, maybe it wasn't related to our event at all. And do they think that that just blows over as long as nobody dies or as long as nobody gives it to like their parents or grandparents who then die? Like does, does the UFC, do you think in their risk tolerance here, do they have built in, okay, maybe some people will get it, but that won't be such a big deal as long as it's non-fatal. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think you can fully expect to jump in here and do these three events and jump out without any fallout at all. Like, I think it would be foolhardy for the UFC to think that. Like, maybe they can do it, maybe not. But, like, they have to be at least considering that possibility in their in whatever equations they're running about why they would go ahead and do UFC 249. It just seems like in any kind of, like, risk assessment or, like, risk-reward strategy that we're working on here – uh, we are. It seems like they are able to tolerate a significantly high risk in order to be able to to make this money. And again, we can only speculate about why they would want to do that. But uh, it seems like the normal barometer of what is safe and what would be a good idea has been extorted, or I'm, I'm sorry, distorted a little bit here uh, in terms of of like what they're willing to do just in order to make these events come off for one reason or another. Uh, all right. Well, let's go ahead and do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we will move on to. Round number two this week. Uh, ben, have you seen this thing that was in the news uh, with the Together at Home One World concert series? Yeah. Yeah. Where uh, you've got this like worldwide uh, stay-at-home concert series where you've got all of these uh, participants that are basically filming concerts of themselves. People like Lady Gaga, you know, uh, people uh, – People like uh, Ziggy Marley is involved, Rufus, Rufus Wainwright, you know, like famous musicians. <laughs> and then you got uh, our guy Chatry. Chatry Sichutong from 1FC is out here. I believe it was a Facebook post where like basically what this guy is doing 
is he's taken the name One World Together at Home. He capitalizes the one uh-huh. to put it in all caps to try to associate this event uh, with One FC. And and to his credit, like this event is being put on by a group that One FC has partnered with in the past. I believe Chatri Sichitung himself has donated to this event. But basically, he puts out this Facebook post that kind of tries to make it look like uh, One FC has staged this together at home concert that raised $127 million for COVID-19 relief all around the world. Uh, you fucking kidding me, man? Like, no one's buying that. No one's falling for that, man. Are you kidding me? Are you uh, kidding me? I mean, this, I guess I got to give him credit for it, man. This makes me wonder, you know how every once in a while you'll see the the global markets uh, company CME group? Yeah. Uh, see them mention around maybe you and i next time we hear about them doing something good or making a whole bunch of money at something we see if we can piggyback on that yes i'm entirely for that let's try to uh pretend like we are a multi-billion dollar fortune 500 company absolutely 100 percent. i don't see how that could go wrong (laughs) no i think everyone would buy it yeah wouldn't even question it at all what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week well, speaking of events that are still going on during the pandemic, did you see this clip from Chael Sonnen's Submission Underground? I believe continuing to operate in a like a grain, an empty grain silo, uh, where Craig Jones and Vinnie Magalhaes are having themselves a grappling match. And Craig Jones, as he is known to do, he's going to go for those footlocks, man. He's going to attack that leg. He's going to do some stuff to your foot, your ankle, your heel. And it looks like he's working on kind of like a heel hook thing on Vinny Magalhaes. And Vinny doesn't want to tap. But then you kind of get the sense afterwards that maybe Vinny's foot is pointing in directions that it's not supposed to point in after he gets out of that thing. Yeah, Vinny wrote about it on Instagram. And he was saying how he was in the lock and he felt a little bit of a snap. He said Craig Jones actually felt the snap too and paused to ask him if he was okay. And he said, like, yeah, I'm okay, keep going. And so they kept going. And he said he wasn't feeling any pain. And he's like, you know, I'm flexible, but I was looking at my foot and feeling like, man, that feels, that seems like it's flexing even more than normal. Are you fucking kidding me? Vinny Magal is out here. He's just not, he, he doesn't want to give you the, the satisfaction of getting him with your stuff. He knows everybody's going to get there to do their stuff. He doesn't want you to get him in the, one of those damn foot locks. And yet, even he has to look down at the foot after that and be like, all right, you know what? On second thought, I might be done grappling for the day. Are you Jesus. fucking kidding me? You're fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. So, Chad, as we all have no doubt taken note of by now, PFL is not going to be running a season this year. Or all of 2020 had a plan to start its third season, crown another million-dollar champion by the end. But all this stuff going on, plus the specifics of the way PFL has structured its whole thing where it doesn't just rely on one-off events, but an ongoing season where fighters fight like five times in a year, just decided there's no way we can reliably expect to pull all this off, has gone ahead, canceled the 2020 season, Plans instead to start in spring 2021. And the initial announcement was that it would give a stipend to all contracted fighters. And then we learn in follow-up days after that that, A, there were going to be a lot fewer contracted fighters by the time you get done 
cutting uh, from your, your roster a little bit. Uh, I believe one report said that around a third of the roster was let go before the stipend starts. And two, that the stipend itself will be about $1,000 a month. So I guess what, what I'm asking you here to start with this round is, is that A, still pretty good and pretty reasonable steps by PFL? And B, should you maybe just say all that at the very beginning so it doesn't feel like you're trying to bait and switch us? Yeah, I mean, in just in terms of the drawbacks of the overall uh, season format for staging MMA, this is one that probably couldn't have been foreseen. Uh, it's not like you can go down to Jacksonville for a three-night stand and then, and then, as I said before, uh, skedaddle out of Dodge with a truck full of money. That doesn't work for the PFL because they're doing their season format. Uh, and I agree with you that, like, in some ways, this is a great thing. Like, PFL is going to pay its fighters a stipend. We haven't seen the UFC say that they would do that. You know, we've seen Bellator give its fighters um, the money that it would it was that they were going to get for the events that have been canceled. But like, kind of paying your fighters a, a you know a living expense or like a training expense stipend per month, I think is is a great thing. Like, it, it, I'm sure that we all wish it was a little bit higher than a thousand bucks, but at the same time, it's better than nothing. Uh, it's a thousand dollars you weren't going to have, you know, just if you weren't going to go fight. So I'm sure that, uh, that PFL fighters are glad to have that money, but yeah, I mean, it, it seems in some ways, like maybe they put out the press release before they did the math, like we're going to pay everybody this amount of money. And then they figured out, Oh wait, we can't actually do that. We need to like have some layoffs here, but, uh, it does, it does feel like they maybe should have, uh, figured out the whole program before they said it publicly, or at least, you know, front loaded the bad news first. So everyone would know that they were, that they were going to be trimming the roster to, to that extent. But and like, they probably could have handled it in a way where they said like, you know, we can't keep everybody on. We are going to be releasing a bunch of fighters. Hopefully they'll be able to go out and get fights in other places. But for those people that we are able to retain, we are going to pay them this thousand dollar a month stipend. And they could have uh, avoided a lot of the kind of bad, news or backlash that's happening here. But like for the most part, this seems like a fairly humanitarian, fairly uh, decent thing to at least try to do on the car on the part of PFL. Yeah. You know, and I talked to the PFL CEO uh, and did an interview with them trying to find out, you know, what their thinking was on all this and what the details were. They, he was, I tried several times to get numbers about the stipend and who would get it and when and for how long. And they were intentionally not telling me that saying that they were still communicating the details to the fighters and they wanted to do that first. But I, I agree that also, if that's going to be your stance, then why don't you wait until you have everything ironed out and you've communicated with all the fighters and managers and everybody, and then tell us the whole deal all at once. Cause I do think you would get a little better of a positive bump. If you were just telling us like, okay, here's the deal. Here's what we're doing. Here are all the details on it. Cause you know, we're going to ask and you know, we're, it's going to come out eventually too. But you're, I mean, you said that how you know the, it's not like the UFC is getting a stipend. Dana White said in, in an interview with Kevin Aioli that he is specifically the UFC is definitely not doing stimulus payments. That the UFC is you know it's going to work with people try to get in fights, people who have missed fights that uh, haven't been rebooked. It's going to try to give them some money. But I believe I saw that that was that people who had fights actually booked and were willing to fly across the the, the ocean to go try and stay in these fights that it was capping them at like $20,000 at the most that it was going to give you for fights. So still a lot of people probably going to end up feeling like they're out some money there, but you're right. I mean, for PFL, their whole structure works differently. So they did say they're not closing the door on the opportunity. If it looks okay to do some one-off events, but it's not going to be the same thing that if you're a PFL fighter, you feel like you signed up for. I mean, a big part of the appeal for so many of those people is, 
hey, I sign up. It's a kind of it's a more merit based system than another MMA promotions, and all I need is one good year, and I could get a million dollar payout at the end. And if you signed up with that expectation, and now the PFL is going like, well, maybe we'll be able to do one or two events later this year. Uh, that's not the same deal for you. So I can understand how some people would be feeling like, okay, maybe the stipend helped make up for that. Plus, I mean, as somebody pointed out to us in a mailbag question uh, this week, was it was it Matthew Liming who, who wrote to us saying, like, hey, people are knocking the PFL for only paying out a thousand bucks a month to the fighters. The U.S. government is giving out twelve hundred dollars for like ten weeks or whatever. So it's like eh, they're still doing better than the U.S. government. That's that's one thing to keep in perspective. Yeah, here's an interesting question. If you were a PFL fighter, would you want to remain under contract and get the $1,000 a month uh, stipend and, and kind of hang around and wait for the PFL to come back? Or would you try to take your chances and, and get out of your contract just in an effort to try to get some fights this year and try to make a little money, even though you're not sure what that MMA landscape is going to look like and you're not totally sure that any place outside the UFC and maybe not the UFC for very long will actually be putting on shows? Yeah, see, that's the thing is that uh, you, if you were thinking, well, hey, if they can't use me, at least they're going to release me and that's good news because then I can go on and try to fight somewhere else. But where? It's not like there are a whole lot of MMA promotions being like, well, hey, we're hiring new talent right now. The UFC maybe will find a way to continue putting on events. But even then, it's got a big backlog already, like a huge roster of fighters who are going to be trying to get in there and get their fights, their contracted fights. The UFC wants to offer them their contracted fights just so it's not in breach of contract. And it's not that great a chance that they're going to be hiring a whole bunch of new talent to jump in there and unless there's a whole bunch of people who end up not being able to accept their fights for one reason or another. So, I mean, if I were a PFL fighter, I'd probably feel pretty good about staying on the roster, getting some money coming in, and with the promise that when they do start up a season again, I'll get to be a part of it. Because it, it, I think there's a very valid question to be asked right now about what is the effect of all this going to be on those smaller MMA promotions, the ones that kind of they don't have enough money in the coffers to survive months and months of a shutdown, and especially the ones, as we've talked about before, where the live gate is kind of the whole deal to them. It's one thing for the UFC to be like, hey, we can go ahead and, and put on a show with no fans because we're still making money from – rights deals and tv deals all over the place but a lot of these other promotions it just the business model doesn't work that way what's going to become of them yeah all i saw that uh the news had come out that bellator is going to try to return in july um scotty cokes in his classically kind of coker way seemed rather dry and understated about the ufc's plan to carry on i believe he said it was quote-unquote ambitious uh but I wonder if if you are Bellator and if you are PFL, like I wonder what you're thinking when you're looking over at what the UFC is doing. I wonder if you're looking at it and thinking like, oh man, maybe we should have, uh, maybe we shouldn't have been as aggressive in closing down. Maybe we should have kind of waited a little bit to see how this stuff works out. Maybe we could have got back to business. Or I wonder if you're looking at it and you're thinking like, uh, wow, that's that's way too soon. That's way too aggressive. That's way too kind of uh, you know caution to the wind for us. Like. Uh, it could lead to a lot of trouble. I wonder which way the the other MMA promoters are leaning at this point, and I wonder how closely they're watching uh, what the UFC is doing uh, in a couple of weeks down there in Florida. Yeah, well, you know that was one of the things I was going to say in round one that I think not only are other MMA promoters going to be watching and seeing how this works out for the UFC. I think there's a lot of sports leagues in general, like outside the MMA bubble, who are going to hear about this idea and be like, okay, let's let the UFC go first and let's 
wait and see how it goes because we've heard different plans from different sports about how they might try to have some sort of a season or finish out some sort of a season without fans in, in attendance and if that could work. And you would think just looking at the numbers involved, if it can work at all, it should be able to work in combat sports more easily than in big team sports. Where just, just because if you think about how many people you need to have to play out the rest of an NBA season or NHL season, it's you know, in the thousands. Whereas the UFC can do these events kind of one at a time with you know, under 100 people in the building. It's, that's completely feasible. And I would not be surprised if there's a whole bunch of those leagues being like, let's see how they do it and let's see if it ends up in disaster or not. And then we can kind of consider about what we can learn from that. And I'm sure it's the same for other MMA promoters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I saw the NHL has – uh, created a committee to try to get back to action. I know that there's some plans for uh, Major League Baseball. Clearly, we just had the uh, virtual NFL draft last weekend. So sports do, in some ways, march on. They're trying to kind of get back to to play, but we'll see what happens. And and yeah, the UFC kind of in the vanguard here, uh, getting out there to to try to get back to business. So we will see how that works out for them. That will do it, I think, for round number two, and we will be right back in round number three. Ben uh, wrote kind of a fun story over on The Athletic uh, back on April 18th. People seemed to enjoy it. We thought it would be worth discussing here on round three of the show in this time when we don't have very many ongoing fights to talk about. Basically, the the gimmick of the story, if you will, was that if you were going to build the perfect MMA promotion using the spare parts left over from other MMA promotions, how how would you do that and how would you fix some of the problems or some of the downsides that we've seen from modern MMA as we knew it. So uh, I wrote this story up suggesting, I believe it was eight steps, eight things that you could steal basically from other promotions to build your own promotion as kind of like a super uh, Frankenstein fight promotion, clearing up some of the mistakes of the past. Uh, I'll just read them and then maybe we can discuss the, the feasibility of any of this or if you have any input or if you would do anything differently. And then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, step one, I would use the the UFC's roster of talent, I think, obviously. Step two, I would pay everybody a living wage. I would go for a 50-50 revenue split between fighters and ownership. Uh, step three, I would go ahead and boost KSW's production values because they're one of the only promotions worldwide that's still sort of doing what you might consider to be like a pride style of over-the-top theatrical events. Uh, step four, I would go with one championship's easy access streaming app, which you can get for free. And then you can kind of watch the events on your phone anytime you want. Number five, I would go with pride rules, except I would have elbows in my show. Number six, I would give open scoring a try, which Invicta did down there in Kansas city during one of its Phoenix series events pretty recently. Uh, number seven, I would go with a Scotty Cokes, uh, Bellator professional leadership style. We talked about that a little bit in the previous round, going in to call the UFC's plans, quote unquote, ambitious, and perhaps most uh, uh, applicable to the CME audience, step number eight, the 165, baby, the 165. 165. Now, in looking at this story, I sat transfixed for a while at the top image from a KSW event, I believe, right, of uh, you do coming out in a sports car. 
Yeah, yeah. Followed by some uh, some ring girls, obviously, because you got to have that got to have that happening. But just some smoke. You know, I'm saying KSW, they're doing it up. When you go to a KSW event, man, you're going to remember that. You're going to remember the time you went and saw KSW. Yeah. Okay. I guess my question, first of all, is why do you think the UFC, especially, but other just like North American fight motions, why does nobody else seem to want to lean into the over-the-top production values? Is it just pure, we don't want to spend the money to get the sports car in here? Is it like, we don't, we want this stuff to run on a tight, predictable timeline for the sake of TV production, and we can't be messing around with entrances that might take too long? Like you see, you know, you watch a big boxing fight like uh, Deontay Wilder and, and Tyson Fury, and we're doing some fun stuff walkout-wise. And you just, the UFC seems to clamp down so hard on anything like that. Why do you think it's just not even willing to consider stuff like this? I think it's probably a combination of different factors. Because you remember the UFC used to do that kind of stuff when Zufa first took over uh, from SEG. There used to be lasers. There used to be, uh, you know, nothing nothing comparable to what Pride was doing. But, like, they would have a special song for Chuck Liddell, right? They would have, like, a, a metal version of Ice Ice Baby for Chuck Liddell to walk out to along with the – a stylized hype video. And even, you know, more in the modern era, we've seen them do some stuff with Conor McGregor walking out to Sinead O'Connor and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I think early on, and this is, I guess this is just sort of a guess on my part, but like, it seemed like there was a, a, a concerted effort to go with a more pure sport slash boxing, like uh, what you might think of from like a Mike Tyson entrance, like kind of like a stripped down, no frills walk to the cage. And I think that that's, you know, during the early stage of the Zufa era, what they what they wanted to aspire to. They wanted to be seen as like uh, hard-nosed action sport, but very much a real professional sport and very much a, a, uh, a legitimate sport. And so I think that they took purposefully took some of those more theatrical, some of those more over-the-top elements out and, and went with a more stripped-down look. But I think that, you know, now maybe in 2020, we've, we've reached a point where it would be okay to bring some of that stuff back in there. But as we've talked about on the show a lot in the past, at this point, the UFC seems to have what the UFC does down pat, and they're just going to recreate it as many times a year uh, just to get those paychecks. The other thing is your idea for a 50-50 ownership fighter split. How are you ever going to afford a weapons room, my man? How I mean, are you I, ever going to afford to buy your neighbor's houses and tear them down if that's how you're approaching this? Maybe that's not exactly what we would be going for. Maybe we wouldn't need I'm to out. buy our own private island. I'm out. Count me out. I mean, I mean, you it's going to be a bitter, a bitter pill for the investors. You can't just keep 85% of the profits all the time. I agree that that's going to be a, uh, you know, maybe Mark Wahlberg's not going to sign on to be one of our investors, that being the case. But I mean, I think ultimately you get to a better sport if you are able to do that. If you are able, if the, if the, uh, the starting salary in your promotion is more like 30 to show and 30 to win than 10 or 12 to show and 10 or 12 to win. I think you get to a place where you have more professional fighters on your roster. Like you have people that don't have to go work a second or a third job. You don't have to have the guys who are, you know, working at an automotive dealership or something and then training on their off time. I think you have a situation where people could live more like professional athletes. They could focus more on their craft, more on their training. And then ultimately I think you get a better product probably in the cage. If you have uh, guys that are, are, you know, full-time fighters instead of splitting time with another job. And maybe it means that you can't have a thousand Ferraris in a, a private golf course or whatever out your backyard, but uh, maybe those are sacrifices we have to to make to make this thing work, man. 
well, the flip side of that is if I'm paying these fighters so much better, maybe they're not as desperate to take absolutely any fight I offer them on absolutely any kind of timeline. I well, I think that there are things that would probably work out a little bit less advantageously for the promotion. Yeah, you're right about that. Maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't have people showing up uh, with blown out knees to take fights. Maybe that would be a, a matchmaking headache. But uh, I mean, that's, those are the, the uh, I guess those are the risks we're going to take. Those are the sacrifices we're going to make in 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 order to have uh, what we feel like is the best promotion out there. Now, how do you feel like the North American audiences and the athletic commissions are going to respond when we have people out here kicking each other in the damn face while they're laying on the, on the ground, stomping each other's heads and whatnots under pride rules? Well, maybe we maybe we got to do this overseas, man. Maybe we need to call uh, call our guy Sakakako Bar or whatever his name is, see what we can do over there in the uh, Saitama Super Arena. Maybe here's where it will come in handy to have a private island. Ah, damn it. I guess you found a loophole in this whole thing. You pulled the thread that made it all unravel. We can't have our private island. We're not going to be able to do head stomps and soccer kicks. Uh, Okay. One that I actually am very curious about is the professional leadership style. And I think we all hear what you're saying. We hear the subtext in what you're saying, that maybe you don't have a guy out there calling everybody goofs and uh, burying fighters, unpromoting people whenever they displease him, and then having to turn around and sell their pay-per-views, stuff like that. Uh, labeling everybody scumbags who disagrees with him. But do you, don't you think that there are a lot of fans in MMA who they really, even if they don't exactly love Dana White's bombastic style, they feel like, well, this is more entertaining for me. Like this is more fun than uh, Scotty Coke showing up, never raising his voice above a conversational level and just answering every, every question about how he'll get back to you in a week or 10 days with an answer to that. Yeah, I do. And I think that even for the the subset of fans that complains a lot about Dana White, I, I feel like uh, he at least is something that they can depend on and like something that to, to make the headlines, something to kind of pass the time. But I just wonder at this point if any of that is really effective in terms of like actually selling the product anymore. I think you could make a real good case that for a long time, you had to have somebody with Dana White's style of attitude back in the days when you were basically grabbing sports fans by the shoulders and shaking them and telling them to give you a chance and take a look at MMA and maybe that's something that, that you would like. But at this point, man, I feel like the people who like the sport have found it in many ways and that while I think there is still some room for growth, I'm not sure that the uh, the over-the-top bombastic leadership style is really doing us a lot of favors at this point. I don't know that it's bringing in a lot of outside attention, at least not the kind of attention that really actually translates to eyeballs on the product. I think we've learned over the the, the most recent years that you really have a personality-driven sport. And and by personalities, I mean people who are in the cage with their personalities. You know, you uh, I don't know if, if, uh, if Dana White's leadership style helps or hinders a guy like Conor McGregor or somebody like Ronda Rousey. I think that just sort of having the PR uh, juggernaut behind you of the UFC, being able to be on that platform is probably the the biggest driver of those people's success. And I don't, I don't know that like that, that wouldn't happen if you had another person involved at the top, you know, if Scott Coker was running the UFC, I think Conor McGregor would probably still be a big star. And uh, you know, I don't necessarily know that you can throw a lot of that at the feet of Dana White at this point. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do uh, Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff this week? Chad, did you see that uh, as part of, I think, fundraising to help coronavirus relief efforts, the UFC is organizing a contest in which a winner 
will get to sit in on a matchmaking meeting and make a fight. Mm, I did see that. Yeah. That is the promise anyway. Now, you can imagine, depending on who the eventual winner of this contest is, that somebody's going to get in there and be like, Conor McGregor versus Tony Ferguson or, or something like that. And they're going to be like, LOL, no, we're not we're not going to let you make like a big fight like that. Like, come on, like, let's be reasonable. I guess I'm just saying, well, I really like the idea here. I would love to see actual footage of how this whole thing plays out in terms of the matchmaking meeting and somebody making a fight. I'm just saying, UFC, if you come out of this at the end and you're like, well, you asked for it, like our fan, our lucky winner, they got to make the fight, and the fight they chose was Sam Alvey versus Devin Clark. So there it is. Book it. The fan asked for it. The fan spoke, and we listened. I'm just saying nobody's going to believe it. You got you to gotta give us something realistic that we can believe. You're not just going to be able to book some like fight night undercard fight and expect us all to go along with it. I'm just saying. Just saying. Yeah, these two random Dana White contender series fighters were the were the dream fight of our of our lucky fan. Uh, ben, have you parsed through any of these things? Alexander Hernandez has said he's been on sort of like a media tour, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the least of which was that he said he might have got coronavirus, but he fucked it up. Fucked, he just it, fucked up. it up. Uh, I was reading some of these quotes here. Uh, this is Mike Heck over there on MMA Fighting had Alexander Hernandez on his show. Some of the things he said, he's he had the, he was involved in this conference call with the UFC where they told everybody that everything was going to be fine about these upcoming events. Here's some stuff Alexander Hernandez had to say. He said, I'm curious about a paycheck. That's the only thing on my mind. I spent a lot of money in preparation for April 18th because we got up to the week right before and it's costly. It's costly on your body and then you have to pay your coaches plus convincing and coercing these guys to put on during a pandemic. That might be a little extra. That's the only thing I'm curious about. Anything else to me is as gray as it was when the fight got canceled. I don't think that they've done a great job bringing any clarity, but also that's just the world we live in right now. There's just not a lot of clarity. And then he says, yes, he's confident that he thinks he's going to get paid, uh, that he would be compensated. I do expect them to come through. So you read all that and you think, okay, yeah, yeah, Alexander Hernandez. Like you, you, this, all the stuff you're saying is sensible. I like, I like what you're saying. And then you get to this last quote where he says, so when pandemic strikes and we need somebody to get knocked out, I'll knock that guy out, whoever it is. I will indiscriminately do that. So I guess I'm just saying, uh, what? You're just saying that sure. maybe his worldview isn't internally consistent? I just, I, I don't know if, if everyone totally understands what's going on here. You know? When the pandemic strikes and we need somebody to get knocked out. We need it. I'll knock, I'll knock yeah. that guy out, whoever it is. That's the not Surgeon General it, is like, here's what we need. We need somebody to get knocked out because of the pandemic. And Alexander I'm just saying. Here. Just saying. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, uh, thanks for everybody for tuning in for the co-main event podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday with the live chat. Don't forget, everything's free over on the Patreon this week, so get over and check that stuff out. Then, of course, Friday with the uh, with the Power Hour, we got two weeks of free stuff available over there at the Patreon right now. So go over to patreon.com slash co-main event and check that out. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. The thing that I that I need most of all amid this pandemic is uh, is for somebody to get knocked out. Yeah, me too. Except I need for the somebody to be you, champions. What? Come on! No, you don't I need, need a, that. Alexander Hernandez to go over to your house 
open the front gate, walk up the steps, ring the doorbell, knock you cold. I hope that doesn't happen, man. You know, uh, Don't put that now that I think about me. it, I think about all the obstacles that are in the way, I feel like there's probably a pretty low chance of it happening. All right, good. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. Unless we absolutely need it. Unless, like, if Doc, Dr. Fauci tells Alexander Hernandez that it's the only thing that will save us from the pandemic, then you might be in some trouble. You might have to take one for the team, the team being humanity. You know, you know what? If that's the thing that, that clears all this up, let's do it. I just don't think that's how it works, though. I just, I'm not, I don't think that's how it works. There's only one way to know for sure. That's true. That is true. Great point. 